Hey, everybody. J.D. Flynn here, editor-in-chief of The Pillar. I am really excited to tell you about a new podcast The Pillar will launch really soon. Sunday School is a Bible study podcast featuring conversation about scripture with my friend, Dr. Scott Powell. Scott has a love of scripture and real expertise. He's a seminary professor and an evangelist. And if you listen to a lot of Catholic podcasts, you've probably heard him before. I'm sure of it. Sunday School will be published in seasons, with each season focusing on a specific book of the Bible. In our first season, I'll learn from Scott all about the Gospel of Mark and invite you to learn along with me. Each episode will include Pillar co-founder Ed Condon reading the chapters we talk about so you can be fully prepared for Scott's commentary. Sunday School is meant to be fun, engaging, informative, and spiritually encouraging. Scott and I had a lot of fun putting it together, and we hope that you will like it as much as we do. Our first episode will drop soon. Thanks, everybody. Don't forget to subscribe to Sunday School wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by 3W Medical for Women, the only life-affirming nonprofit women's clinic in all of Seattle. To learn more about their services or to find out how you can help support them, please visit 3wmedical.org. That's the number 3wmedical.org. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Hi, J.D. Hey, buddy. How you doing? I'm I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling relieved. I'm feeling... Um, it's been a good week for us. Yeah, tell me. I mean, you that's what's doing? We got a lot of stuff over the line this week that we've been waiting on for a while, and I'm I'm very glad that it's finally happening. Well, we're launching our we're podcast, launching. Sunday School, which you just heard about in our little promo thing. So we're launching that. Yes, that's we fun. Like that. Well, we're talking to Scott later, so we'll... Oh, yeah, we're going to have Scott on the show. That's going to be great. And then what else? Which is cool. We'll talk to you. But we got Luke's newsletter, Starting 7, is finally out, and it's in people's inboxes. We and, announced and this week... Really happy about Tell that. people... I'm happy about it, too. But tell the people, if you don't... If you listen to this show, but you don't read the Pillar post, our newsletters that we publish twice a week, uh, you may not know. Maybe you even read news on our website, but you don't get our email newsletters each week or you're behind a little bit. You may not know about this new project that we have just launched um, at The Pillar, just made available to you. And so, Ed, tell them about Starting 7. We Starting 7 is Luke has been sending us. Luke for, Coppin, our senior contributor based in, lives in England. Yes. Luke has been sending us every morning for a, a while now, months now. Um a, basically, a, a morning news roundup of everything that's going on in Catholic media, in the world, in the in the Holy See's um, press office bulletino, in you know, sort of what's on the horizon this week, stuff like a, a, a tight morning top sheet of Catholic news, because he's six hours ahead of us. And I mean, this is the thing I have been reading before I finish necking down my first gallon of coffee in the morning. It's the thing I, I have already read it before I. Let's just put it out there, Ed. You read it in the bathroom. I no, ew! You don't take your phone to the bathroom. Do <laughs> like you? something like eighty-seven percent of Americans admit to taking their phone to the bath into the bathroom. Oh, that's oh come off it! Oh come off it! Oh come off! What is wrong with you <laughs> come people? Off it. Okay, so whether you read it in the bathroom oh. or not, this is the thing that Ed reads in the morning when he's animals. <laughs> I was trying not to say I read it in bed, but I mean... Okay, good. so you read it in bed. Before you get out of bed, you read this thing. What is it? Yeah, it is the first thing I reach for when my phone, when my alarm goes off. I shut the alarm off and I open this every morning. And we have, as we have been saying, been trying to think of ways to say thank you to our paying subscribers who are helping us grow or the reason why we can do things like hire journalists like Luke 
and stuff like that. And what and this email basically is, is we call it starting seven around our newsroom because it's basically seven, uh, uh, sort of seven things that are centrally important that are happening in the life of the church, sort of seven stories, not just from the West, not just from sort of the U.S. or Europe, things we already know about, but Luke reads everything. And so it's seven things happening related to the church all around the world. And then some other stuff, you know, and it's just bam, 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 link, link, link with a little summary. And then some other stuff, too, a sort of calendar of upcoming events. Um, uh, um, uh, one thing, Luke kind of goes a little bit deeper and, and writes like us, really writes us like four or five paragraphs each morning about one thing. But it's very, very tight. It, it takes like five minutes to read at most. And it, and it just sets you in the mood of knowing what's going on. It's great. It's what I use to figure out what I've missed when right. I wake up in the morning. Yeah, you know, that's right. It's already Roman or noon. what are people like, going to well, be talking happened? about it when you get to the chancery? Or what are people going to be asking about in the parish? It's the thing. If you don't have time to consume a lot of Catholic news, and you also listen to this podcast, it's the thing that will make you conversant on things which are happening, not just around here, but again, the really cool thing for me about it is Catholic things happening all around the world. And we've even watched stories sort of develop by Luke's kind of just covering the developments of them in Starting 7 over time. Yeah. So I uh, anyway. So so there, the thing itself is fantastic. It's very. I, it is. It, it is the. I I just inhale this thing every morning. So there's that. But also we have been looking to get this out for a long time now, and there have been delays and delays and delays because we we wanted to we put it out, do it on our new website, not our old website. We went, exactly. Then once we had the website, we had to figure out the back end a little bit, and we had to kind of overcome some other bumps and just make sure we were, knew how to use the website. Exactly. Yeah. It, yeah. it, it's been delay after delay. We wanted to get this. We wanted to start sending this out at the beginning of September, and here we're at the beginning of October is when it's actually launched. So I'm just I'm super excited that that is out there and it's happening because it's fabulous. And I, I, I think people are going to take it for what it is, which is it's a great thing in itself. But also it's it's what I, I hope people understand. This is this is the thing we're giving like to say we really appreciate the people who are subscribing to help keep the pillar going. That like that it means a lot. It means enough that it's like you know we haven't created some new you know silly bauble of you know well, we're pretending you know we've invented some new thing to call it a subscriber it's like no we're giving you the thing that we have like i that my my work becomes manifestly harder by sharing this because it's the thing i used to cheat right, to exactly. get up on the news that's in the morning. right it's the thing that makes us like, seem like we know stuff yes yeah. mm -hmm. we're giving you what we have right we're giving you of our own and and i i hope people will will like it for that and i'm i'm really excited that's out there so that's that's helpful we've got the like you said we've you know, the new podcast is finally launched this week, Sunday school, um, we'll talk about that with Scott in a little bit. So just generally speaking, I feel like there's been a good week for like big bubbling projects that have been in the background for a while are all now done and out there. And I feel like the elephant is off our chest a little bit. Yeah, I'm very excited about it. I hope that people really like it. There, there are, it's, um, you can go to our website and just click on the thing that says starting seven and figure out how to, how to sign up for it. And it's pretty easy to sign up for. And, um, uh, and it's great. Did you say that, um, we're putting it out there. Our intention is to put it out there. This is not a subscription drive, but our intention has been to put it out there as a kind of thank you to our paying subscribers, but we made it available for the whole month of October to everybody. Did you say that? Because a dog was barking, and so I wasn't sure if you said it. No, I didn't say that. Okay. Um, I, mean, I did say it's for our paying subs, but yeah, it is, it's free, free to air for everybody for, for a for month. October, and, and then we're kind of, yeah. but it's not like, what we basically want to do is this thing that Luke was doing, we want to share it with people who are making it possible for us to employ Luke effectively. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not that we're trying to be jerks about it when we do pay well at the end of the month. We just want everyone to be upfront with that upfront about that with everyone from the beginning but this is this is our way of trying to say thank you to the people who are who are paying to help us keep going that's what it is and caveat i said this in the newsletter today and everything if you are a religious sister or a house of religious sisters or a priest or a seminarian just a, or just a person who finds herself in this situation where the five bucks a month is 
legitimately not in the budget, you know, just tell let us. Let us know. We'll, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll, we'll make it work. We'll make it work for you. Don't worry. We're not we're not looking to lock anybody out, but we are looking to legitimately say thank you to the people who are paying subs. So. Indeed. Okay. Anyway, so Star Trek 7 is great, and you're very excited about having yeah. released now, it. We're going to talk about something important for a second. Okay. You, you let slip earlier today <laughs> that you – and I didn't bite on this because I wanted to save it for the show. So we are legit coming to this cold. I, we have not discussed this. I didn't I, – Gosh, like, I'm so nervous now. I had heroic restraint, not even like blinking twice when you said this. And I just let it slide. And I thought, I'm going to bring that up later. Um, you're buying a cowboy hat, J.D.? I have to buy a cowboy. Yes, I have well, to. I have to buy a cowboy. You have to buy a cowboy. I have to buy a cowboy hat. Okay, say more things. Um, okay, here's the deal. A friend of mine run an apostolate called Camp Foytua, which is a very cool Catholic summer camp for kid teenagers, really. Like um, I think middle school and high school, but it's a very cool kind of Catholic summer camp. It's in the mountains here in Colorado, and it's it's very much sort of like uh, outdoor stuff, hiking and rock climbing and um, things like that, and also, I think very cool catechetical opportunities and charismatic preaching and stuff like that. It's a very cool catechism. My friends, my friends have this apostolate, right? And so tomorrow night is the gala, like the the annual fundraiser. They they call it campfires and cocktails because it has a kind of camp theme. But tomorrow night is the sort of annual fundraiser for the thing. And uh, uh, a few weeks ago, the friend who runs this was saying to me, you know, like, hey, there's something I really want to ask you for the. Um, for the campfires and cocktails. And I thought he was going to ask me to be the, um, the, uh, uh, MC, um, you know, the guy that kind of does the announcements and stuff like that, but he didn't. Um, he asked me, Ed, to be the auctioneer. Oh God. And <laughs> I told him, I th- we didn't talk about this on this show already. Uh, no, you, you mentioned, I think you mentioned it on Twitter or something a while ago that you wanted to see if I would approve auctioneering lessons well, auctioneering for you lessons as a business cool, expense. But this guy asked me to be, I mean, it would be very cool to go to auctioneering school. It's less than two weeks and it's not as expensive as you might think. And I could probably get a discount, but um, this guy asked me to be the auctioneer. So at their fundraiser, they'll have a live auction with like some very cool items that people can bid upon. And, um, and then a sort of a, a, a paddle raising fundraiser where people can commit to certain levels of fundraising for the thing. And they asked me to be the auctioneer. And I told them that I, don't mind trying anything, but I don't actually know how to be an auctioneer and I don't know how to do it. And I'm not, you know, I don't think I'll do it very well in these kinds of things. Cause you actually have to know what you're doing. You know, to when they talk fast and everything, you have to know what you're doing. And, um, and they said, you don't, they're just making noise. And then they say the actual noise. number. They're the not end. just making noise. So this was about two or three weeks ago that they asked me to be the auctioneer. And I said that I would do it. And Ed, since then I have been watching YouTube's Effectively, I have created for myself a little auctioneer academy in the in the in my spare time. In You've the been night. watching cattle auction YouTube videos. No, I've been watching how to YouTube videos and doing practice. You, there, there's there's a whole there's a whole auctioneer community out there. Ed practicing together on YouTube, and I have been entering into the, that. Wait, community. wait, 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 wait. Back up. I'm going to assume you misspoke because what you just said is there's an entire auctioneer community practicing together on YouTube. Practicing with the same. Do you YouTube... all critique each no, other? Do you like well, you record yourself? Does that exist? Like, auctioning off stuff on your desk in your own spare room, and then like other guys like write in in the comments like, "Nah, you, you kind of fluffed it on that one. You wanted to pivot to the new bidder earlier." Does that exist? Sure, that exists. Am I that deep into the 
the community as it probably were. no i'm not that deep into if the it community. exists you would be. i'm not that deep into the community i just been watching the things and pr- and practicing a little bit while i watch them you're a, you're you're a youtube auctioneer lurker. lurker yeah sure but i've been i've been i'm a, i'm autodidactic you know that and so i've been teaching myself uh-huh. how to do this and uh and not well i mean i'm not i'm nowhere i'm like a level if i were i'm not even a level one amateur auctioneer but i am ready i as as ready as i'll ever be and i've been practicing in fact tonight uh, we're recording this podcast on friday and tonight my family's coming over my parents and my sisters and 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 such and we're gonna have a lot of we're gonna have a practice we're gonna gonna auction your family off no i'm just gonna practice with them so I, i have to get a cowboy hat because it seems to me that having a cowboy hat is central to successfully right. managing Let, an auction. okay we're gonna now we're gonna we're gonna talk now that's fine and this is all interesting background but i want to talk about the hat because hats are important agreed you you got to make sure you're wearing the hat the hat's not wearing you so what are we thinking here first of all are you you're not doing straw i assume you're going to go full felt well i don't know because i don't know it depends what the weather is you know no no it doesn't depend on what the weather is that would be ridiculous if you're gonna get a ha- if you're gonna be a bear jd be a grizzly well i'm get gonna buy a stetson a i'll proper, tell you that i'm gonna yeah there are a lot of western stores where i live you see this is probably right. hard for you to understand but where i live there are a lot of western wear stores so what i'm gonna do vis-a-vis a hat is go to a western wear store and get sure. not with an idea in my mind but get outfitted by an expert now you're saying he's ah. gonna see you coming yeah maybe he's gonna, gonna see me uh, coming a little bit i get it but i'm also just gonna say to this fella this is what i need the hat for and then I'm going to let him guide a little bit. You know what I mean? Okay. It Do you not, have preferences? I have preferences, but I don't think we probably share them. Are, we gonna, are, are you going to go? Are you going to go teardrop crown? Are you going to go with a hot dog bun? Are you going to go rounded top like Hoss from Bonanza? Like, tell see, me. What tell I'm me what surprised you see. about here, Ed, is that we are coming to this conversation cold, and you have a lot more of the lingo than I think. It, I like hats. <laughs> I, hats are important. A well-made hat is. I have several well-made. Fur felt hats that I have acquired over the years. Because the thing is, when I lived in London, and it would rain often, um, and you know you would have to get public transportation to work every day, and you'd have to do so in the rain more often than not. And I discovered early on, if you carry an umbrella, it is a massive pain in the backside. You know, you when you get on the tube or whatever else, you have to put it down, and then the water's dripping all over your shoes or whatever else. It and then you've got to. Jo- and if you're on a if you're on a crowded pavement or me, sidewalk. Um, to be the jerk with the umbrella that's like poking other people in the eyes or letting it run down the back. Just stay away from umbrellas. But a well-made hat will do everything an umbrella will do, and it's hands-free. So, no, hats are important. I'm, I'm down with this. So, um, are, how, big a, how big a brim are we going here? I, uh, I don't – again, I, don't, I neither know nor need to know these things that you're t- asking me because I'm going to go to the Western store. All right. But you're going to go for the like, kind of gull wings fold up on the, Again, on the front quarters and size, or are you going to do like a flat round brim that's kind of, you know, still upturned well, all a, the way around like a sort I mean, of classic s- straddliner, like an LBJ hat. You've no, I mean, you've seen an auction, right? Yeah. So you understand that auction. I've been to many auctions. I mean, not out West. I've been to real auctions, but yeah. Okay. They can, there can be real auctions in many places, but you understand right. well, I, yeah. what you understand what I'm saying, which is that in my view, clothes make the man. If I'm going to do this well, right. I've got to be. I've got to have the hat. And I here, agree. if you, it doesn't matter what kind of auction you go to. Around here, if you go to an auction, you're going to see some hats. And so I'm going to get a hat. As to the details of this, one hat, last question. I'm going to the place where they know about the details, so that I don't have I to understand. Know about it. Well, you're going to have to answer some questions. They're no, going to ask I'm not. you I'm the same tell questions the I am. I need to be in an auction. 
Right, but he's going to ask you indoor, outdoor, black tie, casual. I will answer those questions for him. Well, you're not going to answer them for me. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know because your enthusiasm about this is a little bit much. I'm. I'll be honest with you. I'm invested in JD's cowboy hat. I. I want. I want pictures of it. I want. Ideally, I would like you to send me pictures as you are buying the hat. I would like to be able to give live <laughs> feedback on the options. I'm, it's too bad. I wish that you were. I have strong views on hat bands. I wish that you were in town. If you were in town, I would be taking you with me to the hat. Well, if you'd invited me to your freaking birthday party, maybe I, I would have actually. Been, you know, but... it's, it's so funny. It's so funny you say that. Kate asked me a few weeks ago, "Who do you want to come over on your birthday?" And I said, "Ed and." And she said, "Well." realistically who do you want to come to your birthday so i said my parents yeah well, whatever thanks so for the I invite got. yeah okay well anywho i got to do this hat thing but we got a show to make here we can't just be we oh, can't just be delving into my personal the life people no, want to know the people want, want to know about the hats you know we're going to get notes about talking too much about my hat uh we're going to get notes about people saying they expect a twitter thread of the various hat options and a poll at the end that's what i am on get. the stetson website which is a little pr- a little pricier than i thought i mean i, I might not have oh thought no stetsons are not for nothing man yeah i, I might not have thought all I'm this familiar. out but um i like the ring con straw cowboy hat i like the no, 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 you don't do straw. you're doing felt well that's a one a lot more money and two not really yeah. what i was thinking that i wanted if you're what gonna I was be a bar be a grizzly. Yeah, but sometimes cowboys wear, uh, auctioneers wear, uh, we got to move on. We got. All right, we got to move on. Fine. What do you do. want to talk about? Since you will not talk about cowboy hats, uh, what do you want to talk about? Well, there's a lot to talk about, but I think. You can we... wear a bolo tie? You know, I haven't thought about that yet. I could. But I, the thing is, why I won't wear a bolo is I don't have boots. My dad has cowboy boots. You don't boots. have boots? No, I don't have cowboy boots. What am I, a politician? <laughs> Oh, well played. Well played. Uh, my dad, who is not a politician, has cowboy boots. Uh, his feet are a little bit smaller than mine, and they're probably, I don't know how broken in they are, and I, I don't know how to walk in them, so I'd be clunking, clunking, clunking. Uh, you, you, know? you don't want to wear boots that are too small. Yeah, I don't want to wear boots, basically. Very uncomfortable. All right. So what would you like to talk about? Well, there's a lot going on in the church, but actually, um, this is about the time of year when we tend to turn our attention from the many things happening in the Church Universal to uh, preparation for the fall meeting of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. This is about the time of year, Ed, when we start talking pretty near exclusively about the fall meeting of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Why? Because it's what we are expert in. Well, it's at least, yes, it's what, we, it's what we're expert in, and it's what the people want to hear about. And by the time we get to the fall meeting of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, November 14th through 17th, uh, I want all of our listeners to be really prepared for all of the things on the agenda, all the things that are going to be discussed, and all of the figures who will factor into all of that. So this is the time of year for us to start talking about the conference. And it's a good thing because the conference announced this week the candidates for the election of president and vice president of the USCCB, who will be voted upon at the fall meeting of the conference next month. And this is a unique election. And we have to go back. We've got to go back pretty far in ecclesiastical history, all the way to the 1970s, to have an election like this one, where the bishops are not expecting to go to Baltimore and elect the vice president of the USCCB as president of the USCCB. Why not? Because he's not eligible. Archbishop Alan Vigneron, the Archbishop of Detroit, who is vice president of the USCCB, will be too old to be elected president of the USCCB because you have to finish out your term before the mandatory retirement request age of 75, and uh, and he will not be. So the bishops are going to elect, uh, usually they're they elect both the president and vice president, but the vice president is expected to be shooed into office. That's the ordinary course of things. Um, but in this case, we know going into the meeting that both the vice president and the president will be 
um, newly elected figures. And, uh, and so that's a little exciting, isn't it? It's very exciting. I, I like it. I, so, okay, do we, you want to talk about the presidential candidates and, and that whole thing? Yeah, we can. Yeah, we're going to talk about the president. I would like to, but I'd like to have a disclaimer first. Okay. If it's all right. Because we do have one or two Episcopal listeners. I know this. Yep. And it, as improbable as it is to me that anyone I, listens to If they're still listening us, after all that hat nonsense, I'll be shocked. If you if you hadn't insisted on giving us all the senseless background and cut straight to the hat chat like I wanted to, they would still be with us. In fact, we'd have had time for more hat chat. But you, but I'm, we're not going back down that road. What I was going to say is, I we both think a lot about the the sort of dynamics of the USCCB. We think a lot about the bishops in a sort of abstract way of you know who's the square peg, where's the round hole, all that sort of thing. And, you know, what guys look like they'll be a good fit for a particular officer, a particular committee and all that. So we might be discussing this with a certain degree of informality. This, is both, just, our, this is both our favorite sport and our favorite politic. It, it is also yes. an assembly of religious leaders in a religion which we profess to be the one true faith. So we, we do have the sort of filial piety that is required of this, but we will be discussing it as the sort of folks who this is our fantasy football in a certain way. Well, I don't want to it use is. the word fantasy, so I, but this is our this is the thing that we track. Yeah, and so if if I just want to make it clear, if we if we sort of start informally throwing around the last names of bishops and not quite <laughs> always referring to them with the rank and dignity that they deserve, I want to make it clear it's not that I don't care. It's that this is you know this is sports talk for us. Do you us think there are bishops who are listening to this show who will be would be surprised if we didn't exhibit filial piety at every moment? Not at every moment, but you never know. You might look. It, I know how you get when we start talking about the USCCB. You get into it. This is this is your favorite thing. So I just wanted to make it clear that if if it comes down to sort of my team versus your team stuff, it's not to suggest that we you know we don't respect okay. all the bishops. So That's we are it. going to talk about the elections of the uh, of the USCCB. But Ed, you're not going to believe it. Uh, we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by 3W Medical for Women, the only life-affirming nonprofit women's reproductive health clinic in all of Seattle. Ed, since 2017, 3W Medical for Women has been providing free of charge, evidence-based sexual health services, education, and support to the at-risk women of Seattle, Washington, including patients who are low-income, uninsured, or facing reproductive health issues and unplanned pregnancies. 3W Medical for Women is on the front line of our post-Roe world. Located just blocks away from one of the leading progressive universities in the nation, 3W provides a true countercultural alternative in reproductive health care. 3W's licensed medical providers spend up to an hour with each patient, making sure they feel truly seen, heard, and cared for. Because they are 100% donor-funded, they do not profit from the reproductive choices women make, and no patient is ever pressured into decisions or procedures with which she feels uncomfortable. To learn more about the services of 3W Medical for Women or to find out how you can help support them, please visit 3wmedical.org. That's three, like the number, 3wmedical.org. We are back. Welcome back, Ed, to the Pillar Podcast, and we are getting ready to talk about the candidates announced this week for the presidency of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. But before we do that, just a minute about what the conference does and uh, and what it's for. Ed, would you like to take that? What's a bishop's conference? Okay, but we are going to be short on this because I, I want to I wanna really get our fingernails I just, dirty I, with the I candidates. don't want to talk about the conference until people know no, I understand, understand what the I conference understand. actually so the bishop's is. Conference There's is, a lot of is, misunderstanding is, about what a bishop's conference is. Yeah, you a bishop's conference is, is basically a super diocesan structure. It's a creature of canon law. It is, most importantly, a merely ecclesiastical 
institution, um, yeah. creation, institution. It's not a function of divine law. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did not, when he founded the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, intend there to be such things as bishops' conferences and as at it the happens, time. He was never even a member of an Episcopal conference, right? And yes, and indeed the church survived for hundreds of years, millennia even, without bishops' conferences, and who knows, maybe one day will again. But for the time being, we have these things that are national or regional conferences of bishops where they get together to discuss um, issues and pastoral action and plans and ways in which they can coordinate on issues of particular moment or importance. Now, they are not, generally speaking, legislative bodies. They are not a governance body. They, you know, The USCCB is not the sort of supreme hierarchy or institution of or legislature of the Catholic Church in the United States or anything like that. It is, um, I always say it is closer to a trade union of bishops in the United States than it is to a legislative body. That is, you know, it is not quite a, it's not a talking shop per se, because it does come out with a lot of important normative stuff on, you know, translations for the liturgy, things like that. And in particular occasions of, of shall we say, crisis, like after the McCarrick stuff and after the spotlight scandals, the bishops conference is the thing that came up with things like the Dallas charter and the USCCB essential norms. Um, but you know, to have legislative effects, stuff like that had to go to Rome and be approved by the Vatican. So it's not, you know, sort of sua sponte in that way. Yeah. That, no, that that's close enough. That's right. They can, they can, the, an, a bishops conference is an aggregation of bishops who of diocesan bishops, auxiliary bishops and retired bishops who come together to coordinate their pastoral action and who can, um, in certain cases, when Rome has given them permission to do so, make laws for their territory. Like, for example, the USCCB sets the age of confirmation and sets certain norms about financial transactions and things like that. That's that's a bare-bones vision of what a conference is. More broadly, and I think, Ed, you covered this, the conference um, exists and has a sort of curial apparatus and things like that to help the bishops insofar as they judge it appropriate to exercise their teaching authority or to make statements of or teaching public interest, um, and then to kind of coordinate the various kinds of missionary work that they, you know, the various kinds of apostolic work that they that they do. Does seem fair? Yeah, yeah that's okay. fair. Okay, so you and have, the conference we have lobbies this... the federal government on behalf of the church. We forgot to say that the conference lobbies. It, yes, it also does that. Okay, great. Okay, so as you were saying before the break, um, we have for the first time in decades, 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 a completely open slate for the presidency and vice presidency at the same time. There's no expectation. There is no vice president that can be expected to be elected. Right. President, so, so no we've one got is walking that. in thinking they're going to elect the vice president to be president. Right. It's an open field and we have a crowded field. Like right. there's, there's a, there is a number of candidates. There are, there are what, 10 what, three, candidates. Ten? There are 10, 10 candidates. candidates for two jobs. Right. And so the way the elections work is that the bishops elect, um, elect a, a vote until they elect someone with a majority of votes to be president. And then subsequent to that, the remaining nine candidates are in a field for the vice presidency, and they have a vote. And um, if someone gets a majority to be vice president, great. If someone doesn't get a majority to be vice president, then they have another vote of the same when it's kind of clear who the front runners are. And then if that if that doesn't produce all by itself um, a, someone getting a majority, then they have a runoff between the top two vote getters. So two full rounds of nine and then a runoff between the top two vote getters. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so I, there, I was trying to think of a couple of different ways we could talk about this and talk about the candidates and everything else. And I thought it would just be easier if let's do a draft pick. Okay. We'll, we'll go turn and turn in order of you think probability 
Who's your number one draft pick, JD, for this? And what we're not saying is who. What we're not. I think it's this is important. What we're not saying by draft pick is who would you vote for to be president of the conference? No. JD, who do we right? think will attract the most votes and why? That's right. Who do we think? Who do we think will win? So we're 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 not making our own choices here. We're effectively handicapping the race. Correct. Nope. Nobody. Nobody listening to this podcast expects us to. Um, Say who we would the, vote for? In, in, issuing endorsements of the candidates. <laughs> I just, Although I do have one. I would issue one. I if, just, I I know. And, and I don't even know that we would issue the same ones. But I think what we, we're doing we here would. is we're saying who is the most likely to be voted president. And then sort of, then are we going to talk about vice president after that? Or are you, we're going to keep talking about who's like, you well, let's me. just do the presidency uh, to get through all 10 of the candidates so that we get through the whole slate of 10. And then after we've talked about all of them, we, we don't want to work who. backwards and start with who do we think is least likely. No, that seems unfair. Okay. And this way it's back and forth, back and forth. So it's not like your top five, yeah, okay. my top five. So, okay. know, we, we'll see everybody's called. It's and like picking teams traffic. for kickball. Okay. Of, the, yeah. of the 10 candidates nominated by the USCCB, by, the, by their fellow bishops, nominated to become USCCB president, the one who I think is, the, is most likely to be elected at the moment is Archbishop Tim Brolio, the Archbishop of the Military Services. Actually, the Military Ordinariate of the U.S., but we call it the Archdiocese of the Military Services. Okay, tell me why. The reason I think that Archbishop Brolio is likely to be elected is um, effectively because he came the closest last time. So Archbishop Brolio um, came in uh, was the uh, was the guy who um, uh, who wasn't elected um, to vice president last year. So uh, so last time the bishops' conference had an election back in two thousand and nineteen, uh, Archbishop Jose Gomez, who had been vice president, was elected handily to be president because vice president is usually elected handily to be president. So take that off the table. Then you had the election for vice presidency, and um, Archbishop Alan Vigneron was elected, and by a pretty sizable majority, but the second place guy was Brolio. Um, He was sort of in second place among the bishops, and Vigneron had been um, conference secretary, and so when he was elected vice president— his position as conference secretary was vacated, and so Brolio, and so they had an election for that, and Brolio was handily elected conference secretary. So there were like two ringing endorsements for the guy right in a, right in a row. One, he was the sort of second place guy for VP, and then two, he was immediately elected to another job. So accepting that there, you can't elect in this election the VP to be president is normal. Right. You're saying that the next best sort of continuity, next the, man in line. He's the continuity guy, plus there's a couple paying. other things, right? Well, not so much dupaying. I don't think it's thought of as dupaying. I think it's just that he's no, up it's not there, right? Paying, but I would say they, you, there's in the, the room. mentality in the elections of the USCCB that you're, you've got chairman and chairman elect. You've got president and vice president that, you know, there's, there's a, you, you. There's always the, thought about continuity, right? About a succession yeah. plan. Right. That's right. Yeah. And he's up there on the dais, you know, he's doing stuff, he's coordinating the um, Priorities and Plans Committee, which is a very, very important committee in the USCCB, which he, he, he coordinates. So, one, I think bishops see him as being sort of the guy who is deep, most deeply involved in sort of experience. But two, and, and they kind of gave, and then the two, they gave him that endorsement of, of uh, electing secretary last time. And then three... Archbishop Brolio is the Archbishop of Military Services. His office is in Washington, D.C. His home is in Washington, D.C. It's actually really, really close to the USCCB building, at least the chancery for the AMS. Yeah, the chancery for the AMS is really, really close to the USCCB building. He is seen as a guy who knows how Rome works. He's seen as a guy who um, can be at the USCCB and be involved and who is seen to have this experience. So I think he's going to get a lot of votes. Now, there are some people who think that he's very conservative, um, there will be. Wait, when you say there are some people who think that he's very conservative, I just want your honest take here. 
are there people who think he's very conservative or are the people who aren't going to be voting for him just saying he's very conservative? Well, I mean, I think the people who aren't going to be voting for him, many of the people who aren't going to be voting for him think he's very conservative. I think he's moderately conservative. You know, I mean, I think Archbishop Brolio is mostly sort of, um, if you wanted to fight it between conservatives and liberals, and I don't love to do that, I'd rather talk about... No, I don't either, but you use the word. Communio and concilium or something like that. But if you want to sort of say, I, I think Archbishop Brolio is from, you know, not sort of way out there um, on anything, you know, in an outspoken way outside of the sort of um, sort of mainstream of, of the bishops. And, you know, he has worked um, in the whole, he has worked in the Holy See. He has been a papal diplomat and apostolic nuncio. He is very sort of reliably in a way that the bishops will see as reliable, very sort of reliably in a certain way, an institutionalist, a man of the institution. And that I think, probably gives him a leg up right here in, in certain ways. I mean, certainly gives him a leg up from people who are seen as being a renegade or something like that. But probably right now, and there's been a lot of tension between Rome and the Bishop's Conference, it gives him a leg up. And probably the fact that he's relatively sort of like personally modest doesn't make him seem sort of as, as conservative to the people who are not going to vote for him as some probably of the other candidates. Okay. So yeah, I think he's a sort of, I, I'm guessing he's going to be the front runner unless we're flapping, we're a butterfly flapping our wings right now and we're going to undo that or something. I'm, I mean, I which is I don't give us that much credit, I'm not too concerned about it. It's not my, not my yeah. affair. Okay, okay. So agree? I mean, agree or disagree? Yeah, I broadly agree. I think he's probably I, to to the extent to which you could handicap a favorite. I'd say he's probably it. Okay. So who Ed do you think then? I guess what you're kind of tell me is who you think is sort of most likely to be elected vice president. Actually, that 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 would exactly be what I'm what I'm picking. What are you here. doing? I, here? I, uh, well, I mean, my sort of, if this is a draft pick, my, my then, my first round pick, accepting that Brolio's off the table is I, but also as it happens, I think the likely way that this will fall will be Archbishop Brolio will be president. And I think um, the next pick for me. The next most likely the, guy to The next most likely, and also so you're I saying think if most Brolio likely were hit by a bus, the next most likely to be elected president? Okay, don't put the mockers on the dude, man. <laughs> I just What's, don't even understand that's this grim. I like talking about this stuff, but I, I don't know really. Understand. Okay, go ahead. No, I, I would say Bishop Kevin Rhodes of uh, Fort Wayne, South Bend. Oh. I think he is, I think he's impressed a lot of people. I think he, I mean, you know, if you want to make this a sports thing, he's sort of come out of nowhere in the last couple of seasons, um, seemingly. But he did really sterling, sterling work uh, on the doctrinal committee of which he was chair, um, has been chair, I should say. And most importantly, when the USCCB was lighting itself on fire last year, over the Eucharistic coherence debate and document, it was Bishop Rhodes who had to, you know, somehow come up with something at the end that the conference could get behind. And he did this with a sizable minority of the conference saying, you shouldn't have a document and you, we shouldn't have this conversation and all that. And he still came up with something which turned into a very consensus document. And also he was the one in Baltimore last year who in, you know, there were a lot more closed door sessions for the USCCB last year than there normally are. Normally there's sort of three open public business days or whatever, and then they go into closed session for a final day and all that stuff. But they were going into executive session like every night for a couple of hours to talk through potential amendments to the Eucharistic coherence document to sort of, you know, really give the bishops a chance to talk. And the guy driving that train was Bishop Rhodes. And everybody walked out of there saying they felt hurt that they went from a situation in June where there was a lot of ill feeling. It was obvious 
to a situation in November last year where there didn't appear to be much, if any, ill feeling, that people, the bishops seem to have restored a certain measure of communion or at least um, cordiality among themselves. And and I think Rhodes has got to get the credit for a lot of that, that he, he chaired the committee, he produced a document, and he had to referee those sessions. And he's the one, if all those bishops walked out of there on a really contentious issue, having felt heard, that's, that's, I think that's what you want in the conference leadership. Yeah. I, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I hear what you're saying. I think, uh, I think Rhodes is a, is clearly someone who is, um, standing a pretty high percentage, a pretty high chance of being elected. Do I think it's a lock that he would sort of be elected vice president? No, I don't. I tell you a couple things. One, I know I I wouldn't say that he came out of nowhere. I mean, he was chairman of doctrine. You don't get elected chairman of doctrine if nobody knows who you are. That's a big and important committee. And before that, no, I was saying in terms of public visibility. Oh, because before that, he was chairman of Limfly, which is yes. a very important committee, right? Lady Marriage, Family Life, and Youth. It's like the super dicastery of the of the USCCB in a certain way, right? I mean, it just had a lot of a lot of things in its portfolio and a lot of things that are kind of visible. So, like World Youth Day is in there, and um, uh, the mer- the marriage unique for reasons kind of stuff. The church's sort of defense of marriage stuff fits in there vis-a-vis the subcommittee for the promotion of defense of marriage. So Limfly just has a lot of stuff in it. And uh, you don't get elected chairman of Limfly if people don't know who you are. So I, I would say for the, I, I would say the bishops who have been, have been kind of giving Bishop Rhodes important jobs now for a little while. And uh, it's true probably that that was his most sort of bit of public visibility um, was the, the Eucharistic coherence document. Um, so I definitely think he is a likely candidate to be vice president. The, the sort of with a singularity. The thing is, I think if there's something working against uh, that possibility, it's that the bishops tend to do what they've done before, for the most part, barring things which are you know kind of very. There are some except big exceptions to that which people point out. That's why it's, but ordinarily the bishops tend to do what they've done before. So who came in third place in the vote for? Vice President last year, um, Archbishop, or in 2019, Archbishop Coakley, the Archbishop of Oklahoma City, who I think by that fact and the fact that the bishops tend to do what they did before um, is probably also a You just a front chastised runner. me for saying next man in line, and yet this is no, basically how you're No, I chastised you for saying pay their dues, because I don't actually think it's a thought of, I don't think there's any sense at all of paid their dues, like he's earned it, you know what I mean? And like he's paid his dues, now he gets the big ring or something like that. I, I don't think that's how bishops con- conceive of it. In fact, I'm sure that it's not really how bishops conceive of it. So what I chastised you for was using this sense of he's paid his dues, but it is true, I think, that um, bishops are predictable and that when they see someone in a leadership position, they tend to continue thinking, well, he's a sort of person who's in a leadership position, so we ought to keep him in a leadership position. I just don't think that's the same as pay their dues. And, uh, and, so, um, and so the fact that Archbishop Coakley kind of came in third in 2019 um, you know, makes me think that he is uh, that he is going to continue to, to to garner a lot of votes, and he's a really interesting cat, right? I mean, so he's been chair of the Domestic um, Peace, Justice, and Human Development Committee, which is basically the committee that oversees. He's been the loudest and proudest opponent of the death penalty. Well, that's what I, I was going to say. So he's he's yeah. the he's the he's the, he's the chair of the committee that oversees. Um, sort of the church's lobbying efforts in the federal government and the, and the conference or the conference's lobbying efforts on the federal government, the conference's sort of engagement with domestic public policy. And so he has, he, his name has been on a lot of statements pertaining to things that have happened in the past few years, but sort of on a personal level, yeah, he's been, you know, in his own diocese, um, seemingly with real, you know, like we get a lot of 
we get a lot of statements and press releases from the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City vis-a-vis the death penalty. Archbishop Coakley has been clearly really, really outspoken about that, and uh, and that's really interesting. And he also was the chairman of uh, um, Catholic Relief Services, which is this sort of giant global aid agency. It's it's a controversial giant global aid agency, but it is a giant global aid agency. And so he's just been in a lot of leadership positions, and I think that tends to for bishops to sort of lend the idea of con- sort of continuity and leadership and things like that. So I, I, I'm not saying I don't agree that uh, Kev- Bishop Kevin Rhodes has high sort of stock right now, so to speak, and that he just had this major sort of thing. Uh, I, I'm just trying to say that I think that, you know, an- another person who has a trajectory towards being elected vice president probably is Archbishop Coakley. Okay. Uh, that makes sense. All right. Well, so I'll, uh, for my next pick, then I will go with probably Archbishop Laurie of Baltimore. Oh, okay. For for much the same reasons, actually. Um, Archbishop Laurie has, I mean, I, I'm going to try and find an expression that you aren't going to nitpick at, but it's going to express <laughs> roughly the same thing you have. I'm not saying um, it's his turn necessarily, but I am saying he's been around the conference for a while. He's been around leadership discussions at the conference for a while. He is, I, I'd say, fairly well respected. He has made some pretty important out front interventions on important topics. He wrote um, a pastoral letter on, on racism and racial injustice that was very well received. And, you know, as Archbishop Baltimore said, to deal with a lot of issues around that um, in that city, I think, I, I think he's a guy that people listen to. I think he's, I, I think if Archbishop Laurie, I think a lot of people would think Archbishop Laurie is the kind of guy who would not look out of place on the podium at the USCCB, that he could do that job well, um, either as president or vice president. And and also, I kind of think that this is probably his last go-round um, for elections. Oh, yeah. He's, have... he, this is the last time he's eligible to be elected um, right. to something because of his age. Yeah. So I think there might be something to that too that you know there he will he's he's kind of got elder statesman status i think in a certain degree to a certain degree and and i wonder if that that won't be um be a benefit to him he's he's had important leadership um conference leaderships on committees before i think he had religious liberty for a while he um he's you know like i said he's been around the leadership of the conference for a while and to see his name before i think yeah he's he's not my top pick but i think he should definitely be in the conversation i i don't know that he is i i yes i i concede everything that you're saying i, I agree with everything that you're saying but i don't know that archbishop lori i i would be put, put it this way i would be certainly surprised if archbishop lori were in a runoff for vice president or something well I go. I don't know if I'd be surprised if Archbishop Laurie were in a runoff for vice president. I would certainly be surprised if Archbishop Laurie were elected vice president of the conference. One because they'll be in the situation of an open kind of election again next year if they elect or in three years if they elect someone who is, you know, mm-hmm. a more senior bishop. So that's something. Let me ask you something though. While you're while you're while you've got that thought, yeah, hold on to that thought. I want you to just trap it lightly between your fingers like a butterfly. And and while you're doing that, I want you to think. Is there a sizable voting block in the U.S. bishops who want a wide open election in three years? Oh. Okay, so where, here's where Ed's going. <laughs> uh, here, here's where Ed's going. Hadn't thought of that, had you? No, I hadn't thought about that, but it's really interesting. And actually, you know, it's, re- it's a really interesting point. Okay, so here's where Ed's going with that. Right now, if you think about, look, there has been a lot of division in the Bishops' Conference over the last, um, 
year, and so we don't have to beat around the bush about that. There's been a lot of division around the, around the bishops' conference in the last year, and so we can sort of say, here are some bishops who seem to be kind of having one mentality, and here are some others. So if you think about sort of like the, we'll say the sort of Cordelione, Donardo, Eucharistic coherence, well, you're you're kind of surprised that I'm saying Donardo because you think that Donardo has stayed out of this fight, but I think he probably is. I'm trying to make as big a tent as I can on sort of one side. If you think about the sort of, but let's make it a smaller tent. If you think about the sort of Coeur d'Alene, Gomez, Rhodes, Aquila, Aquila universe, right? A sort of one set. And then you think about the Supich, McElroy, Tobin, Gregory group as the other set, right? There is, there are two possible sort of Supich, Tobin, Gregory candidates on the list, right? So, um, yes. So Archbishop Paul Achen of Seattle is a sort of would be is a sort of outspoken member of that team, and then I think it's probably the case he's he's much more mild mannered, but I think it's probably the case that Archbishop Gustavo Garcia Siller of of uh, of San, San Antonio. Antonio would be more sort of theologically uh, theologically aligned with those guys. I, I think that's probably the case, although again that's a Bit, I'm not 100% confident in saying that. Uh, let's just say, let's say I think Achen, he right? is on the list. The two that are most likely to attract support from, from that those group guys are bishops right. are those. But let's two. say Achen is sort of definitively. There. Yeah. It, it, let's say Achen is definitively there. Achen is not going to get elected president or vice president of the USCCB because they don't have because that sort of, the bishops with that sort of theological vision do not have the votes. But they do have a growing bulk of minority votes. Uh, you know, they're 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 and growing. They minority. do have. A large voting block on the con- or the dicastery for bishops. Well, that's in Rome. So they're a growing minority among the bishops, but they also, you know, Cardinal Supich is a member of the Congregation for Bishops, and Cardinal Tobin, Joe Tobin of Newark, is a member of the Congregation for Bishops, and so, uh, and and that's that's hugely influential in the appointment of bishops in the United States. And so, over the next couple of years, they will do as they have done influence the appointment of diocesan bishops in the United States. Now, where we have seen that mostly sort of exercised recently, honestly, is in the transfer of bishop from one see to another. You know, the the new bishop of Phoenix was a was an auxiliary of of, um, of Cardinal McElroy. It's close to Cardinal McElroy. Sort of, it's thought to sort of fit in that theological vision, although I couldn't give you footnotes on that. Um, but, uh, you know, mostly that seemed to be in, in transfers, even Achen from um, Fairbanks to to um, Seattle, which Seattle. came when Supich was on the con- when Supich was first on the congregation for bishops. So mostly we've seen them moving guys, but there are a lot of retirements coming up. A lot of retirements coming up because there's a, a ton of bishops right now who are 75 or about to turn 75. It's like 10 percent of the conference is going to turn yeah. over in the next two years. And those guys um, are about to, um, uh, you know, those guys are about to get um, the, the sort of Cardinal Tobin and Cardinal Supich on the congregation for bishops. Therefore, will have a big influence on the appointment of new bishops. Um, as those guys retire, which is going to have to happen because they're going to get further and further from 75. And so it's possible that you're going to see more bishops with the theological vision of a Supich relatively soon as Supich and Tobin exercise their their um, their authority at the conference. Now, the, what works against that is that I think that the majority of U.S. priests don't share that. I mean, just demographically, I don't think the majority of U.S. priests of sort of Episcopal age don't share that vision. But nevertheless, I mean, I think that's a likelihood that they'll have a growing, you know, that they'll have a growing number of bishops who share their theological vision. So what Ed is asking, it's a very interesting question, is is there, in fact, perhaps a desire for discontinuity such that the next guy to be elected, the guy to be elected vice president next month can't be elected president so that there's this shot, there's a bite at the apple every three years. In fact, is it reasonable to ask? I honestly don't know. I hadn't thought about it. But 
is it reasonable to ask if that was part of the consideration with um, with the election of Vigneron? Now, Vigneron is I, I think it was, and I think largely I said regarded as, as a the theological conservative, but the numbers would certainly suggest that. I mean, the numbers, the difference between Vigneron um, and uh, and Brolio oh, no, I, would certainly I think we suggest wrote that at the time. But yeah, oh, you think you and I wrote that? I think we did. In which case, I, or I mean, at least look, we discussed just, it. On I've the forgotten show. more about the conference than. I would have ever expected. Indeed. Uh, or maybe we talked about so, it on the show. But the point is, is that could there be a desire for sort of needing to – for sort of wanting to have open elections every three years so that there's another bite at the apple? Yeah, there could be. And could that support the notion of a sort of candidacy of a person like Lori, who is conservative and also deeply an institutionalist, a sort of man of the institution through and through who is conditioned to sort of not want to make sort of waves among his brother bishops but to develop much consensus and distribute influence and things like that? Yeah, it, it could. You could see Lori as a. Uh, you could see if, if someone like Lori had a sort of strong pathway to the vice presidency, or even Brolio, by the way, who could be president. But if he were, he, he wouldn't. He's not old. He's not young enough to be both president and vice president. Who could be president? But if you saw him sort of heading towards a vice presidency, there you would see. Okay, that means that there will be another sort of bite at the apple, a, a less sure thing in three years. Does that suggest that the you know, the bishops who would like to see continuity in leadership would be more keen to elect someone who is younger, kind of a Rhodes or something like that. Yeah, I think it, I think it could. Yeah. So my, my guess would be this. Age factors if, into the map in a big way. It does. My guess would be this. If you get to the vice presidential ballot and Laurie is in the top three candidates, he'll win. He won't come in first in either of the uh, in the in the first round. But if he's at least in the top three, oh, you'll yeah. see a big swing of support. No, and he'll I think shoot that's right. right I think everybody would. I think. I think pe- the the sort of super theologically aligned bishops would rather elect Lori than elect a sort of a Rhodes or a Coakley, to be sure. So if those are the if those are the guys towards the top, yes, I think they would support Lori. Not f- for two reasons: one, just his disposition as a sort of tr- mm-hmm. consensus seeker, blah, blah, blah. and two, this age thing, which Coakley I think is sixty seven, Rhodes is sixty four, so they're in a different position in that they could be elected president. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. We need to, we need to pick up the pace a little bit, but well, actually pick. we uh, have, I think now talked about the sort of guys at the top and yeah. um, we can continue to talk about these guys in shows to come, but we spent a lot of time on hat chat and, and I honestly, I want to chew on this and come back and talk about it more next week. But this age thing is a real factor and I'm very glad you raised it. And, um, Ed, we will be, because I think a lot of bishops would, uh, there is a possibility that a lot of bishops would see Lori as someone who has, done a lot and i wouldn't say pay their dues but mm-hmm. has done a lot and sort of like well we'll we would um want to give him uh the, the recognition of that but you're right that the implications of that are probably probably differently thought through than, than many people would so it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out okay ed we are going to um switch gears a little bit right now because we are you may have noticed this but we have just been joined by i, I guess you would say a guest although he is a, a part of the pillar extended universe or is about to be um because we're going to be joined now ed by my friend um uh scott powell uh scott i guess i should call him dr scott powell because like you scott is a doctor of something so my friend scott powell dr scott powell who is a professor at um saint john vianney seminary here in denver where i live and does a bunch of other stuff too and um and scott ed used to have um 
a podcast that was about that that he did with a priest that was about sort of the readings of the of the of the Sunday. Like they would do a podcast ahead of Sunday about the readings of the Sunday called Lanky Guys because they were both, I guess, tall and thin, and they weren't very good at coming up with names for stuff. And uh, and so um, and boastful apparently, and boastful, right? Exactly. So Scott used to have this show called Lanky Guys where he and a, this priest would talk about kind of the readings for Sunday and stuff like that. And, uh, and, and it was sort of like to help people kind of get ready for preparing the readings for Sunday, you know, preparing their, their hearts for Sunday mass. And maybe it probably helped guys uh, do homily prep as well. Um, but Scott is, uh, is a scripture scholar as it were. So he is, he was sort of uniquely equipped for that. And, uh, and then Scott, what, what, why am I saying all this? What are you and I about to do? You and I, um, probably about to do a lot of things in the grand scheme of things, but more specifically <laughs> right now. We are uh, we're launching a new podcast together uh, under the auspices of the pillar, which I'm very very honored to be a part of, and very honored to be a, a part of working with you guys. Yeah, that's right, Scott. We well, thanks. We're we're honored that you're honored. And, I mean, it's appropriate that you're honored, but we're glad we're glad about it nonetheless. But um, we so you and I just spent a little bit of time doing something that was really fun. We put together a kind of a Bible study podcast about the Gospel of Mark. Um, well, we put together kind of the, the, uh, a test run of a Bible study podcast, which we're calling Sunday School, which you can get wherever fine podcasts can be gotten. Just search for like Sunday School Pillar or something like that, because I think the official name is Sunday School, a Pillar Bible Study. And the way this podcast will work is that we'll do it kind of in seasons. And in each season, you, who are a scripture scholar, and me, who doesn't know nothing, you will basically teach me scripture and then teach it along to me, to, to our listeners. And, uh, and it was really fun to do that. So the first one, the kind of test run that we did was the gospel of Mark. And we have like five episodes or six episodes about the gospel of Mark. And it was, it was really cool, wasn't it? It was, which, and I, I love starting with Mark cause it's a great, it's a great on road in on ramp rather into scripture. I think there's a lot of people, there's a lot of Catholics in my experience who are really fascinated by the scriptures, um, have a love for them, you know, experience them at Sunday mass, but don't really know what else to do with them. You know, how do you engage scripture? How do I go deeper? There's been some great resources out there in the Catholic world over the last couple of years, a lot of wonderful podcasts. And what we want to do is take, um, what I hope is some excitement in the Catholic world about studying scripture and just go deeper and be able to kind of, um, dig out some of the riches, um, of this tradition that's been handed down to us. Yeah, this actually started, uh, the idea of this podcast actually started because you and I were having breakfast and we were talking about the uber popular podcast, Bible in a Year. We were just noting how popular it was, but also noting that to do the Bible in a year, so to speak, you got to move pretty fast and thinking that it would be cool to be able to like slow that down. And and I, I mean, even for myself, wanting to slow that down and, and look at sort of books of scripture more slowly and uh, and then to invite our listeners to do the same thing. And so that kind of came up with so that sort of morphed over a little bit of time into the idea of you and I putting together this Sunday school podcast. Yeah. And what I like about it, I mean, it, it's, it's great. And I think Father Mike Schmitz did a spectacular job and he, they were nice and bite sized, but for a little bit longer format that we're doing, um, I don't know. It, it's, I, I get really sick of listening to myself uh, talk and lecture. And what we don't want this to be is like a big academic lecture. We want it to be a conversation. And it's a, it's a whole lot of fun because we, you and I just get to talk about it and crack some jokes once in a while and, and, and uh, just have conversation and questions about what's going on in the text here, which has been a lot of fun. So it's, I think it's a more enjoyable format than just someone talking at you that we get to actually do it together. I haven't heard any of this show yet my contribution is you made me sit down and read the entire gospel of mark out your loud. contribution is awesome because if you listen to if you listen to sunday school you will listen to ed read scripture aloud to you each week in effectively alec guinness's uh <laughs> accent kate was blown away by the by the ed scripture voice um, did you anyway, code switch ahead, for it did you put on the british I, the, the more british I hat didn't, uh, look i 
No, I've, I've I... heard you give interviews in the BBC, <laughs> and you have a much um, a much uh, stronger accent in that context down. than you do with JD. Uh, as I have often said, and I love it. Said, this is a comp- I, I, it makes me happy. This is as no I've often discouragement. said. People tend to get excited when they hear my voice as it really is in real life, whereas I have to affect a, a sort of American twang when I talk to JD so that he can understand me. Um, it, it, it's a real thing. My wife, who who is English, um, was in a cab in Washington D.C. once and was attempting to get the cab to take her to the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. The cab driver was basically refusing to recognize the words that she was saying. And at a certain point, he got very angry and sort of turned around and looked over and said, you know, this would be a lot easier if you just learned to speak English properly, which <laughs> she was sort of amused and outraged by an equal measure. <laughs> so it is it is a thing that if, if you sound, um, if you're too close to received pronunciation in America, you can sometimes be unintelligible. So uh, it's just what it is. But anyway, no, my contribution to all this was just reading the entire Gospel of Mark out loud, which I'll be honest with you, it was... I, I suppose it's one of the things. It was good for me, um, but it was a little, not daunting, but it it occasioned some uncomfortable reflection because, as JD will tell you, I spend most of the working day at my desk in a sort of caffeine-fueled, nicotine-stained, sweary mess, and just sort of have to pause in the middle of the second, and now I'm going to read an entire chapter of the gospel out loud. It's like, I don't know that I'm actually in the right disposition for this. Um, so that was good. But, and you know, listening to it had that same effect. Like, I, it, it took to listen to you read scripture, which scripture is mostly meant to be read aloud, is it not, um, Scott? Well, oh, I was just about to say that I love this format, and I love that Ed is doing this because, and part of what we try to dig out in the podcast is that there's something about the pro, the oral proclamation of scripture, which is its its original context, its original home when it was first presented to the church, and most people didn't have you know the Bibles that they got on Amazon or whatever, it was proclaimed. And I think there's something to actually presenting the gospel and then some commentary and discussion about it in that way that makes it richer. So I'm grateful uh, very much for Ed's part. Well, I, I, don't need the, I don't know that gratitude is in order, but I was grateful to be able to play a part. Um, but I guess my question is this, what little I know of the gospels from an academic sense, and this is reaching back 20 years or whatever it is now to my undergraduacy is that I know, for example, the gospel of John was not likely to have been written by St. John It was supposed to be written by his disciples or a community around him. This is what I understand. I guess my question is this is, was there really a guy named Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark or is that kind of a literary device? I'll say two things. Number one, I am of the school of thought that John, the beloved apostle, actually is the author of the Gospel of John. There are different schools of thought, but I subscribe to the uh, um, the more traditional school that John John was John. Um, Mark is actually more fascinating. You're going to have to listen to the podcast for more on this. But uh, John Mark is uh, his name is John Mark as he shows up later in the New Testament. He goes by Mark here. But the thing that's actually cool about this gospel is that Mark is the scribe and the disciple of St. Peter. So the fathers of the church all really called this the gospel according to Peter written at the hand of Mark. So Mark was not an apostle. He was a disciple, certainly, of Jesus. He shows up later in the New Testament. But this is, this is, G, uh, this is Peter's gospel, which is, actually makes it really, really cool. Okay. Um, I'm just going to come right out and ask the question that always occurs to me when we're talking about the gospels, and especially the synoptic gospels, which is, what is Q? Oh, jeez. It's the German word for quell. Okay. So it's not to be related to internet conspiracy theories. 
people say that Q, what's the deal? What's the deal? What's the deal here, Scott? Yeah, the, the deal with Q is there is a lot of overlapping material between the Synoptic Gospels and some material that does not overlap. And so presuming that the Synoptic Gospel writers have some knowledge of each other and maybe had utilized some of each other's material, there is some material that goes unaccounted for. So were there other pieces of writings that were floating around out there, other oral traditions surrounding Jesus? Almost certainly does the fact that some of the Gospels aren't written as direct copies of each other mean that there has to be another version of the Gospels that they did copy from? Is that necessarily true? No. Could there be a Q source of some other other sources of some of the uh, parables and sayings and miracles that Jesus did that some of the Gospel writers are pulling from? Yeah, that's possible. Is it also possible that some of them were both eyewitnesses and have the stuff passed down by oral tradition? I think that's actually more likely so yeah, it's it's a theory that floats around that there could have been other sources or another specific gospel source or something that looked like a gospel where they were pulling more information from. But if I've understood you right, that's a German theory. Uh, it's a German word. I think mo- I, I do think well, it originated it's bad in Germany. And wrong. I mean, let's be honest. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Say no more. It sounds <laughs> Q, Q in the Gospels. It sounds to me like it's just a sort of Teutonic Pizzagate of of scriptural <laughs> studies. And I'm out. Okay, I'm with you. Uh, oh, I love it. Um, okay, so. Scott, real quick, just why should people listen to, I mean, it's our show, but why should people uh, listen to our show? Uh, because I, well, those of us who are Catholic, and I, I'm sure your your listenership goes beyond that, but those of us who are Catholic um, are actually much more versed in the scriptures than I think we, we let ourselves believe that we are. We've, if we've gone to mass for any long period of time, we've heard the bulk of uh, certainly the New Testament proclaimed in the mass. Um and I think that because we have this the, – the kind of running joke for a long time, maybe it doesn't exist anymore as much, but the running joke was that Protestants know the Bible, Catholics don't, which I don't think is – I think is demonstrably untrue. We just don't know what to do with our knowledge of Scripture that we have. We can – you know, if, if, you, if I started saying, hey, there was a man who had two sons, I think most people know, oh, their, their mind is going to the prodigal son story. Or if I mentioned a parable, I'm the vine and you are the branches, right? We have some familiarity with these things. But we don't know what to do with them. We don't know how to contextualize them. And we don't know what they mean in relation to everything else. And so what we get to do in the podcast is take, and I love starting with the Gospel of Mark because it's a lot of familiar territory for a lot of Catholics or just anyone who's who's heard the scriptures proclaimed. But we get to show why they're important, what they're doing there, and what they would have meant for the original audiences. What did Jesus mean and what were the first listeners, what were the other disciples hearing when Jesus uses certain terminology and when he brings up certain parables that had cultural implications and political ramifications. And what was that world like? I'm utterly fascinated by the the socio-political economic world that is around Jesus and that uh, his, his listeners would have been, they would have taken for granted because they know what's going on in their world. I always, I always make the, the quip in my classes that I teach at a seminary and I say, you know, say someone a thousand years from now was trying to write a paper on what it meant to be a Catholic seminarian in the United States in 2022. But they had never heard of the sexual abuse crisis. They had no idea of the political divides in our country. They didn't know who Donald Trump was. They don't know any of the cultural circumstances. How can you possibly also, understand they have what to that know, means? like what TikTok even what is, TikTok right? Is, or like there's yeah. a chance there's a chance they have to know what like Minecraft is or Pokemon Go is because these are the things which are referenced right. in the way that people talk which to each other. Which we all other, take right? for Maybe granted. Not Pokemon. Yeah, so it's like there's a lot to know there in order to really – that's what I've really taken from your thing is there's a lot to know there in order to just get at the heart of what Jesus is yeah, saying. Right. Can you explain some of those things to me <laughs> later? 
Look, I I like doing this show, and um, and I liked Ed. Ed, I really liked you recording um, the scripture for this show, and I just learned a lot. And we're kind of promoting it right now. We're promoting this show, which is called Sunday School, uh, a Bible, a Pillar Bible Study, and you can get in any podcast app because um, we liked it. Look, the the reason we made this show basically is because we want to know scripture more. I, I mean, honestly, I made it for the very selfish reason that I want to know scripture more. Um, but we uh, we hope that you guys will check it out. Sunday School, uh, a Pillar uh, Bible Study. But the first season of the show is about the Gospel of Mark. And so um, Ed and I were talking this morning, and we thought it would be a little bit fun to play a game called Which Mark Am I? Ooh. Ooh How does that's that exciting. I, it's okay. wonderful. I can already think of three off the top of my head. Okay, fantastic. So how this is going to work is that I'm going to tell you a little bit about certain marks. Um, and uh, why don't you guys play against each other? This sounds more fun. It'll be a speed game. So, guys, I'm going to ask you questions, and then you're going to sort of chime in or just say an answer when you know it, and we'll see. Who actually knows more about Mark? Is it an actual scripture scholar, our friend Dr. Scott Powell, host of Sunday School, A Pillar Bible Study, or is it Ed Condon, who is aware of scripture because it's mentioned in the Codex Juris Canonici? Let's find out. Okay. So this, this could be bad for you on a marketing level if I lose. <laughs> Don't lose. Okay. Number one, the name Mark in its original Roman form means a person who is consecrated to this Roman god of war. Oh, uh, bingo. It is not bingo. <laughs> <laughs> Who is Ares? No, uh, no, not Ares. The name Mark in its original Roman form means a person who is consecrated to this Roman god of war. Mars? Mars it is. Well done. You know Mars. who knows a lot about Jeez. <laughs> Here we go. Wow. We're off to a great we start. We are off to a strong start here. Okay. Mark is not usually a nickname for Samuel, but it was at least once. This famous American Samuel went by the name Mark. Oh, Samuel oh. Clements. Damn. Mark, Mark Twain. Twain, yeah. Well done. You got that. Sorry, Ed. All right. He was just too quick on the draw for you. Samuel Clemens, it is indeed. Okay, we're going to mix it up a little bit because that's a person who had a different name, Samuel Clemens. Mark Twain had a different name, Samuel Clemens, but went by Mark in his pen name, Mark Twain, author of um, a, a biography of St. Helen and probably some other stuff. Um, but now we're going to talk about someone who's, uh, whose name is Mark and goes by a different name. So Vin, Vin is not usually a nickname for Mark, but it was at least once. This famous Diesel. American... Mark is better known by his first name, Vin. Diesel? <laughs> it is indeed. American actor Mark Sinclair goes by the Mark name Sinclair. to screen, Vin Diesel. You nailed Who's it, Vin Scott. Diesel? <laughs> he's a, he's Who's a poor Vin man's Diesel? The Rock. Vin Diesel's a poor man's The Rock. <laughs> no, no, no. Diesel was a professional wrestler whose real name is Kevin Nash, and he no. was not the poor yeah, man's that's Diesel, Rock. The Rock Vin is the poor Diesel. man's Kevin Nash. But Vin Diesel is a sort of shaved head, muscly actor who's a kind of, if you can't get The Rock, you get Vin Diesel. He's in all the car movies. Cars 1, Cars 2, Cars 3. Uh, uh, who got Mars. No one really. No one. I'm going to claim it. Okay, so then, Ed, so then, uh, Scott, you are basically three for three right now. Yeah, that sounds okay. Right. But this is a personal question about Ed, so let's see if that changes oh, things. Because okay. this Mark is Ed's favorite baseball player of all time. Mark McGuire. Mark McGuire, you That's nailed it. Ed, you love him. You love. I've seen the posters <laughs> at your house and everything. I mean, you love it's him. It's a dartboard. 
<laughs> I Mark have little McGuire, darts shaped like um, syringes. That, the you baseball know, player to have hit more home runs in a single McGuire season than any other hormone. baseball player and also noted user of steroids. Uh, uh, you know, we, should, we need to accompany people who have addictions to drugs. That is one thing that I have learned. Allegedly. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, next one. Okay, so um, Scott is still on an unbeaten streak. The only question now is whether Ed is going to be able to just steal the uh, steal the whole the, the streak. You know, can Scott ruin Can Ed ruin the streak? Okay, so... Guys, this famous American Mark liked the name so much he used it twice. Marky Mark. No, I, no, I was going to say Marky Mark. You were, but you didn't. Marky Mark. Who, who, who do you mean? I mean Mark Wahlberg. Wahlberg. Mark Wahlberg, indeed. What was uh, American the American raptor and actor. It doesn't matter. The answer was Marky Mark. <laughs> this famous American Mark liked the name so much he used it twice, and it was indeed Marky Mark Wahlberg. Well done. Um, okay, but now this question is going to get serious. Ed, you have, you know, you have, <laughs> Scott has four right. Ed, you have one right. So, Ed, you might want to get this one just to sort of have a respectable showing. But, of course, Scott's going to want to sort of vindicate his missed question as well. So let's see how we can do. This is the only mark to hold a supremely important ecclesiastical office. There's plays on words here. That yeah, I don't, yeah, no, no. This is going to be... the um, only mark to hold the supremely important ecclesiastical office. Was there a Pope Mark? There's no Pope Mark. <laughs> there was a Pope Mark! Pope, Pope Mark! Mark! Pope Mark! Pope, Pope Mark! Pope Mark! January I got it. I to totally October of 336, he had, a, he had basically a 10-month pontificate from January of October to 336. Then he died, actually, 7 October 336. Um, this show will probably come out on 7 October 2022. So, But Pope Mark died 7 October 336. Practically nothing is known about him except that his name was indeed Pope Mark and that he helped Scott out today with almost running the table. Pope Mark, and, uh, baby. taking care of business. Which Mark am I? You want to know about Mark, you clearly go to Scott Powell. Well, and Ed cheated on question six, so I don't know if it – I'm, I'm going to call it a streak. That's Look, uh, you guys have just heard it from Scott's mouth. He knows that Ed cheated. He knows a lot about Mark. What more do you really need to know to, um, to pull out your phone and subscribe to Sunday School, a pillar Bible study? Scott, thanks so much for doing that show with me. It was a lot of fun, and I hope it's useful to people, and thanks for being here with us as well. Me too. Yeah, and thanks, uh, thanks for all of you in advance for subscribing. Yeah, I think you guys are going to love it. All right, everybody, we have got to go. This episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you by 3W Medical for Women, the only life-affirming nonprofit women's clinic in all of Seattle. To learn more about their services or to find out how you can help support them, please visit 3wmedical.org. And uh, don't forget, everybody, to thank Scott for being here by going, open up your podcast app and subscribe to Sunday School, A Pillar Bible Study. And uh, Ed and I will be back next week to talk more about the Bishop's Conference. And I promise you, that we will not talk at all about whether or not I bought a hat. But the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, JD Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Ed Hot Dog Molding. Is that what you called it? No, there's a hot dog bun crown. We are, uh, just to be clear, we will be talking about the hat next week. <laughs> we'll be back. Everybody hat chat or not.